Well, good morning, and uh, let's turn to Genesis 18. Uh, as you do that, let me say that uh, there are some copies of our latest prayer letter uh, on the back ledge, and uh, we've dared to produce a prayer card with a photograph of the family on it this year, so if you really don't have anything else to cover your fridge with, there's some copies of that. You may want to pick that up. If you don't already get our prayer letter, and I know many of you do get it by email and you'd like to, just speak to us afterwards and we'll make sure you, you get it. Or if you thought you were getting it but for some reason are no longer getting it, then uh, we can try and track down why that is. Uh, secondly, can I say thank you, uh, not just for having us here today, but in a very real way. Uh, we want to say thank you to Windsor Baptist Church, to our church, and to Baptist Missions jointly. Uh, Ruth and I, we feel spoilt uh, when we talk to uh, other missionaries or hear about their situations. And we do feel really uh, supported, cared for uh, in many different ways. And in particular, we want to thank you uh, and the missionary committee here uh, in joint conversations with the Baptist Missions Committee for uh, suggesting that we take a uh, three-month sabbatical in the next year. So uh, it is likely that you'll see quite a bit more of us in the next 12 months. The details of the timing of that and the exact uh, way that's going to work out is not yet tied down. But we really are very grateful to Baptist Missions and to you for um, the way that you've looked after us. It's now 10 years since we went to Spain. It seems impossible, but uh, it is. Thirdly, in relation to Genesis 18, when I got the uh, email back in December uh, asking if I wanted to continue in the series of the journey into the unknown, uh, I had to laugh, which is a very appropriate response in view of the passage, if you've got it open in front of you, because just three days previously, I'd come back from a conference at which Chris Wright was one of the main speakers, and this was one of the passages he preached on. Uh, and so I immediately thought, well, we'll just play part of the DVD of uh, Chris Wright and get out of it. Uh, but I do need to say he, he did something else with the passage, not, not what I'm going to be doing with it this morning. And also he had an hour and a half, whereas I shall not be taking anywhere near that. We're just using the remaining minutes, uh, and it's not a full message that you're getting this morning. But we are in front of one of the great mission passages of the whole Bible. I hadn't really realized that until I heard Chris write on it. But look at verse 18. Before we read other verses, just let me draw your attention to verse 18. Look at the sentence that jumps out from it. In the middle, it says, All nations on earth will be blessed through him. Well, there we go. We could just preach on that for the rest of the day. But it's one of the great mission texts. Uh, there's a cluster of them in the life of Abraham. And I love preaching on mission from the Old Testament because it immediately uh, undercuts that common misconception that mission begins with the Great Commission in the New Testament. No, it doesn't. God has always been concerned for all nations on earth. We've just read it, Genesis 18, 18. But let's go to the beginning of the chapter. We'll read selected verses, as I'm sure that you are familiar with the main part of the narrative. But verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. And you know what happened next. He offered them a meal. And they spent all day with him. But we're going to jump to the afternoon. Verse 13. 
The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, Oh yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they walked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And we'll end our reading there at verse 22. Sometimes the distance between disaster and deliverance seems so slight. Surviving the recent earthquakes in Haiti or in Chile or anywhere else that an earthquake strikes might hang on something as inconsequential as what time of day do you decide to have your coffee break? And were you on the stairs on your way down in the building when it hit or had you already made your way out and were walking along the street. The contrasts in Genesis 18 are as stark and as marked as that. Abraham starts to walk in his journey into the unknown in verse 16. He gets up and he's walking along with these visitors. And in verse 22, he's standing still, it says, before the Lord. And what a strange day this has been for him. He's conscious that this day has been one of unusual blessing. But now in this strange conversation with God, he realizes that this day is also a day of unimaginable judgment. And in between the two, the Lord is telling Abraham about his role in what God is doing in the world. Well, the certainty of judgment, the scale of blessing, and the significance of our contribution are all key motivations for mission. So let's look at them in that order. The certainty of judgment. There's that striking question in verse 17, isn't there? There's a whole series of fascinating questions in this chapter that I can't develop with you. But verse 17, the Lord says, apparently to the two angels, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And I think as we read it, there's a chill settles around our heart. In fact, it already began in verse 16 when we read, as they're finishing that meal, the angels, the two men, look towards Sodom. And then they get up and they start to walk in verse 22 away in that direction. And the thing is, we know, unlike Abraham, who didn't know yet at the beginning of that conversation, we know where they're going. We know what God is about to do. 
The right word for it is judgment. It's not, the right word is not destruction, it's judgment. Because he's going to examine the situation. Sodom will not be destroyed without being examined. God has heard, he says, the pain and the distress of the victims. The grief. Did you notice? Interesting that in English that in verse 20, their sin is grievous. The same root is grief. God has seen and heard the grief and pain and distress brought about by sin. And he's going down to examine the situation. But Abraham is certain that if God goes there and examines the situation, there's only one outcome possible. And it drives him to passionate intercession. Uh, We haven't read the rest of the chapter. I invite you to do it this afternoon. It's one of the great prayers of Scripture. See, it's possible not to believe in the day of judgment like Abraham believed. It's possible to believe in a day of judgment, to be certain about it, but to be unmoved. Some years ago, somebody said something to Maria, the one who has just slipped her resignation letter under the church door, about the need for her children to be saved, the need for her children to come to know the Lord, because otherwise they faced judgment or Uh, We don't know how it was phrased, but she's never forgiven them. Um, It's not the only reason why Maria doesn't continue to come to church. But it seems that in that conversation, somebody was certain about judgment, but didn't transmit it in a loving or anguished way. But it's possible to have Maria's response to be so appalled that we can't accept the truth of it. Do we believe in a day of judgment the way that Abraham believed in it, to be certain about it, and yet to be driven to passionate intercession for other people because we believe in it. See, they don't know, but we do, don't we? So what a strange day this was, because as this is going on, Abraham is remembering what that morning and afternoon has been like, in which God had renewed the promise of blessing beyond his and Sarah's wildest dreams. Look at the scale of the blessing. Or he mentioned it's going to be blessing for all nations on earth. But look how it affects uh, each of them individually, Sarah and Abraham. I wonder at what point in the day Abraham realized these weren't just three ordinary visitors. I wonder was it at the point when one of them says, your wife, Sarah. How did he know that was her name? And then he looks straight at Abraham and says, your wife will have a son next year. You've been following the whole process of those promises. Well, in a tent, there's no secrets. It's a bit like Spain. Everything's out in the open. So uh, from the other side of the canvas partition, uh, Sarah hears and laughs in unbelief, understandably. And God, whilst looking at Abraham, I think really is talking to her through the canvas tent and basically says to her, he looks into her heart and he sees the pain and the longing and the lost hope, and he basically says to her, Sarah, what I'm going to do for you will overwhelm you to such an extent that the only possible response will be the laughter of delight. Of course, you know what they called the son when he was eventually born, don't you? Well, I won't anticipate that. You'll get there in your journey into the unknown. Do you believe that God is going to do that for you? That there will come a day 
when what God does for you, the only possible response will be the laughter of delight. It might be in this life, it might not be, it might still be in the life to come. But it is going to happen. And what about Abraham? These three men, at the beginning of the passage, walk over the rise of the land towards him, and he goes running out, and he says, Are you hungry? Can I offer you lunch? And if we weren't so familiar with this passage, this is hilarious. The creator and sustainer of the universe, who has sent the rain that has caused the wheat to grow, which grain has been ground to make the loaves of bread, says, I would like that. Uh, the only possible parallel I can think of this, uh, to this is daddy or mummy in the garden, hunkered down with a small child who is making lunch. And in the plastic tea set, in one bowl, we have uh, assorted leaves raked up from different parts of the garden. And in the other little bowl, we have a tasty mud pie. And we have lunch. And we enjoy it enormously. Because it's not about the eating It's about enjoying each other's company, isn't it? And surely that's what's going on in the first half of the passage. Staggering. God chooses to spend time with Abraham first and enjoys his company. How can Scripture elsewhere call Abraham God's friend? Might as well talk about your friend the toadstool. Uh, we, We pick our friends from people that we feel that we have something in common with whose company we enjoy. Can you think of one possible reason in the universe why the God who has created and sustains everything should enjoy your company? Because I am certain I can't think of any reason why he should enjoy mine. And yet the staggering thing from Scripture is that what, that's what it's all about. This is the Gospel. God, who made all things, the Holy One, enjoying the relationship, friendship, with puny, little, sinful, rebellious human beings. Do we really believe that we've got something to share that will make other people laugh with delight? You see, they don't, they don't think it's like that. They think we're somehow wanting to make them more like us or to clip their wings or to drain the joy out of them, something like that. And it's not. Isn't knowing God, enjoying his company... And having him enjoy ours, worth sharing with the world, it drives us to mission. But how does that come about? How does it come about for other people to pass from God's judgment to enjoying God's blessing? Well, that's where you and I come in. The the middle paragraph that I have tended to read over in Genesis 18, and I'm grateful to Chris Wright for drawing the attention to how crucial it is. Don't miss, in verse 18, that through him, All nations on earth will be blessed through him. Yes, it's a messianic prophecy. But, yes, it's also through Abraham, his children, and his descendants, the people of God, through us. You see, mission is not just about what some certain Christian professionals do in other countries. It's about you and me. It's about who we are, how we live in a day-to-day. It drives three things from this passage. We could look at others elsewhere. But in Genesis 18, getting clear the certainty of judgment, the scale of the blessing that God wants to share with us, and yet the significance of our contribution will drive three things. It will drive how we live, 
or to use the terminology in the passage, how we walk. For there it is in verse 19. It talks about walking in the way of the Lord. Isn't that interesting metaphor? How we live. Ruben, our new elder out in Spain, has been having us pray for quite a, num- quite a length of time now that in his work in the refinery, he would be changed from shift work to uh, a desk job, more nine to five, so he'd have more time to be involved in church activities. And yet recently, after we prayed for a number of times and he'd been half promised things, and then it was given to someone else, as so often seems to happen uh, in uh, southern Spain. Uh, and he came to me and he said, you know, I'm beginning to think that maybe God sees that when I'm working the night shift, my colleagues can see what it means to be a Christian in a way that they wouldn't see otherwise. And I get opportunities, opportunities to answer their questions and to talk about Christ in a way that wouldn't happen anywhere else. How you live in school or university or in your street with your neighbors is crucial in God's plans for the world. And it's a walk. It's not a sprint. It's a perseverance test sometimes, isn't it? It's walking uphill. Sometimes it's tough. And sometimes there will be people who will break your heart because they started walking with you. And then they've stopped. And they start walking downhill again. And in fact, may do their best to try and stop other people walking. And you cannot carry them. You're no use to them if you do not keep walking. It drives how we live. It drives how we talk. For God says that Abraham is to direct his children and others after him. What we say to others, children and others. Recently, I've been reading a commentary in Joshua. And I was challenged at a certain point. It uh, was written challenging those who were reading it to pray for their grandchildren, even if you didn't have children. Uh, it was an interesting concept. And I thought, well, I've never done that. never prayed for possible future grandchildren. But particularly praying that what I transmit to my children when they grow up to maturity and then they have children themselves, will the worldview that they pass on still be true to a biblical worldview? A copy of a copy of a copy of a copy is no good. On Friday, a piece of furniture arrived at Ruth's parents' house. They had taken a a drawer with them when they went to order it because it was meant to match other pieces of furniture in in a room. And the man had said, no, don't need that. That looks like that, and that'll do me. I'll work from that. And yet, when the piece came, it was now a copy of a copy of a copy and looked nothing like the piece it was meant to match. And it was promptly put back on the lorry and sent away again. You need to keep coming back to the original. What are we talking about? And is it true to the original that we find revealed for us? That finally, it drives how we pray. Keeping these things clear in our mind drives how we live, how we walk, drives how we talk, it drives how we pray. Oh, how Abraham prays. He's certain about judgment. But he's full of a sense of being blessed by God. And he's convinced that his prayers matter. Read it for yourself this afternoon. Oh, how he prays for that city. It's tremendously sad that for many of the inhabitants of those cities, they were not saved when the day of judgment came. But why was Lot saved? With your permission, David, I'm jumping to read one verse in chapter 19. Turn over the page, chapter 19, verse 29. Why was Lot saved? 
I leave David to wrestle with the figure of Lot in the middle of all of that. You've got an easy one next time, haven't you? Chapter 19, verse 29. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out. Do you believe that your prayers matter? If you don't believe they matter, then you certainly won't pray. Thank you for your prayers for us. Can I encourage you, pray for your children. If you don't pray for your children, who's going to? Pray for your grandchildren. Pray for your relatives. Pray for the people on your street, your friends who don't know that a day of judgment is coming, who really can't conceive of the scale of the blessing that God wants to share with them. We have seen where we are the effect of your prayers, and we thank you today for them and encourage you to keep on praying for others as well. Thank you.